now, for all of those listening from around the world, this is the moment you've been waiting for. It's time! And now, introducing the host, a strength and conditioning coach, real estate investor, athlete manager, and amateur food critic. He stands 5 feet 11 inches tall, and he's on the road to 185 pounds. Podcasting from around the world by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And welcome back to another episode of the Road to 185 show. I am your host, Jared Saavedra. Today's guest, Jerome Maldonado. It's episode 10. Jerome is another serial entrepreneur in the field of real estate. And in this episode, he's going to tell you why you should build one house per year to sell to create an $80,000 to $100,000 side hustle business. There's a clear housing shortage in the U.S. and Jerome plans to capitalize on it. This episode is going to be awesome. Get your pen and paper ready. Let's go. Tell me how you got into to real estate. So... I got in real estate on accident. I, I never, I never, I never even, you know what's funny, Derek, as I never even considered myself a real estate guy, um, even after I had, geez, God, I think we had done probably $70 million worth of real estate transactions. I, I, I started buying real estate in 1999. Um, I, I went was through- it, Was it because like imposter syndrome or why, why didn't you consider yourself that? You know, I just, I just always looked at myself as just a real, just a business entrepreneur. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I owned so many companies over the years that um, my big drive as a young man was more to be successful at owning successful companies, not really owning successful real estate. Mm-hmm. Real estate was a means to security for me. Um, it wasn't a means of a business. Like I didn't jump into real estate so I could quit my nine to five job. I didn't jump into real estate to, because I thought it was the end of all ends to, to, to secure the world's greatest financial um, security in, in, in life. Um, I did it because it was a means for me to build stability in my life. Um, business has ups and downs and so does real estate. But um I went through a lot of ups and downs between 1993 and 1998, man, I, I rode a roller coaster uh, in business. And a lot of it was the challenging nature of the fact that I was new to it, right? Like I had to learn business. So in 1999, I, I bought a single family rental home because I didn't know anything about real estate. So it was like, Hey, it's, you know, piece of real estate, buy a home, right? Rent it. And so it was just an investment, someplace like a park capital. And I had an asset 
And that was really like the technical part of everything I did. I was as technical as it was like, hey, buy a piece of buy a house, right? Uh, park some capital there. And then I bought a second. dream. Yeah, yeah, like everybody, like guys, oh, if I could just have a few rental homes, you know, my I have co- I've had cousins come. Not so many people. I talked to people, talked to a gentleman earlier today, and he's like, I just do single family rentals. And I said, Great, are you ready to graduate in some bigger stuff? And he goes, Yeah, that's what I'm talking. That's you know, that's why I was talking to your team. Mm-hmm. Said, so, you know, it's and so I graduated into bigger stuff because it's my nature. Um, I pushed like an old bull. I just I'm a bull in uh, in everything I do. Um, it's just my personality. Maybe it's because it's the athlete in me growing up. I don't know. I just, I've just always, maybe it's might be the competitive nature growing up with a bunch of boy cousins. Um, but we're all kind of bullish in everything that we do in so many ways. And so I scaled it. And I had a couple homes. I hated them, hated them. Um, did not like single family rentals. Um, I, so I, I bought a building because I had to. Um, I, I had my business. I was running out of my house, my neighbor's. My neighbors hated me. Um, I was running fleet trucks out of my house. It was against our covenants. Oh, and, yeah. and so they, they took me to court. They fought me tooth and nail. And oh, so wow. I, had, I was forced to go buy a building, right? Okay. I, I rented desks in network marketing. We used to call them training centers back in the 90s. And um, we had sales offices, training centers. And um, we'd rent desk space. And I couldn't figure out the network marketing game. So I made more money renting desk space. So I got good renting desk, desk space in my offices. And, um, and I thought, well, if I can just rent like X amount of desks for 500 bucks a month, then I don't have to pay my $2,500 nut every month. They pay it for me. And I'm, I'm desk, I'm desk rent free, right? Like I could just run this office and I don't have to pay anybody else desk rent. And that was always my philosophy in direct sales was if I got five people in here paying me desk rent, then my rent, my rent is free. I don't have to pay rent. And, um, and so when I was forced to do that, I thought in the same, you know, I wasn't like this genius, right? I was like, hey, if I get some tenants and they pay my mortgage for me, uh-huh. just like it being in my house, but now so I- So you, you were desk hacking. Yeah. I, I, wasn't <laughs> I just, I didn't want to pay rent or a mortgage. So I was right. like, if I get them to pay for it for me, then I don't have a mortgage. I don't have to pay rent. And I got a building and my neighbors are happy. My, I have a place for my equipment and I don't have any more expenses than I do right now. And I still make the capital I make, but now I own an asset. And so I bought a building. I'm in it right now. The building I'm in right now is the building I bought 20, um, 22 years ago, man. Wow. Congrats on that, man. Yeah. So I'm still in this building. Um, I Now it's my satellite office. We had a bigger one, but I still own the building. This building has stayed leased. Man, it's been great. This building's made us over $2 million in rental income. Really? Uh, yeah, two, $225,000 when I paid for it. I put $60,000 in renovating it. And it still has the same roof I put on it 22 years ago. It's time for a new one. And we've done some wow. stuff. But yeah, it's paid. It's given us over, over $2.5 million in rental income over the last 22 years. Congrats so, on that, man. We cool little... We still have it, right? So this is one of 11 retail buildings that we still own. This one's small. It's like 8,800 square feet total. Um, we got five tenants in here. And um, the yard used to be in the back over here. And I had it fenced in. And um, since then, we've tore down the fences. We way outgrew that years ago. And um, we have a big construction yard um, just down the road. We own a piece of real estate right down the road. We own three acres. And that's where we keep all our equipment. We, we own all the retail and the office stuff up, all up front. What was the mindset behind that leap between obviously a single family and then going into to multifamily or a commercial space? Like that's 
to me, I'm on that fence myself. Like, you know, it's, it's scary because I don't understand some of the the nuances about it, the financing, all that kind of stuff. What what was it about the, the difference, you know, to make you really take that jump? That's that's something serious. Well, when I got into retail, I, I couldn't believe I could buy a retail building for as much as I paid for a residential home at the time, right? Because I think I built my house for about 250000 back in uh, 2000. And so when I bought the building, I was like, wow, man, I could buy a building, you know, for the same price I'd buy a house. And you still can today. So like the median home is 350. You could still find distressed retail for 350 out there. I promise. It's out there. I've done a lot of these. I used to buy these buildings in the winter. Like I'd start looking for them like in September, October, and I'd have it purchased and closed by November, December. And I used it as a means to keep my crews busy in the wintertime. Um, and I didn't, I didn't complicate it, I think, Jared, I think was mm-hmm. my biggest thing. I, I just, I really looked at it as a means. I was like, okay, I'll just buy a building in, in November. And I did this every year for years. And in fact, I, I did it up until just a, a couple of years ago. Now that I've grown so much, um, I, I really don't have time, but mm-hmm. for many, many years, for probably two decades, I bet for close to 20 years, I bet I bought a building every single winter. And the whole means behind it was when we were slow, we had slow days, instead of sending my guys home, they'd go demo a building or they'd go frame a building. They'd, and I just put them to work doing that. And so I would tell the guys, and it was crunch time a lot of times. So I'd say, okay, guys, end of February, we're going to get friggin' hammered on our residential calls, like in the office by March. We're not going to have time for this. So it was like a race between like December and, and March that we had to finish the renovations on these buildings every year. And then by March, we'd have it up and rented and leased, right? We would lease it. And then I lease it and sell it or, or keep it. And so I have still have 11 buildings. A lot of those are ones that I, um, I did value add stuff too. And, but where my leap was, um, was I started building them brand new in 2004. So I only own one of five retail centers that I built back in between 2004 and 2008. Um, the, the other ones I sold, um, had to, um, I didn't have to, but they were a pain in the ass because I built them and the recession hit. And those ones were the ones that got hit the hardest because I, I was into them for too much money. Um, and the way I got into that stuff, I'm like, if, if I was somebody looking, getting news, people complicate stuff. Jared, you're, you're complicating stuff. It's, it's a mental thing, right? It's, it is. It's a mental thing. I was, I was real bullish, like I said, so I never really complicated it. I, I, had, I wasn't married or anything, and I just had this, um, this, I had everything to gain in the world and nothing to lose in life. Okay. I was a little brown kid from the, from the South. I was a little brown kid from the other side of the train tracks, man. I, I just, I just felt like I had the whole world to gain. I just felt like every other person in the world that experienced good things in life. Why did God allow them to do it and not me? And I felt like, no, he didn't make me inadequate. He made me just as equal as they are. I just need to figure out what they are doing different than me. And I really looked at it like that. I didn't look at it like, Hey, I'm the little brown kid from the South Valley or the, from the other side of the train tracks. I looked at it as like, you know, my parents had invested in my education. I wasn't the smartest tool in the shed growing up, but I was pretty smart. And I was street smart and I was also decently book smart. You know, I got there. I got there. It took me a while to get to the book smart part, right? It took me a lot of years, but I got there. And so I, I think a lot of that has to do with our success, though. I think a lot of people undervalue their wisdom. Um, my mom always pushed us that way. And I think a lot of people don't have that in their parents. And so I saw what my parents did, although they worked traditional jobs. Um, I saw my mom go from driving a school bus when I was a kid 
um, all the way to running nonprofit organizations. So if you're like if you're familiar with like Explorer Science Center and Children's Museum, my mom got 100 percent of the funding to put that place together. She was the first executive director for that, and um, my they were in the Albuquerque Hotel. She used to rent from Jim Long um, over there um, when the Chapman Properties off, off of Rio Grande, right? That was one of the yeah, it was right off the of Rio Grande. Mm-hmm. Hotel Albuquerque for it was still the Sheraton at the time, and um, I just moved back into town. And um, I used to do sales meetings out of uh, the office there, her out of Explora, out of the uh, the office of Explora. I used to do sales meetings at, in there you know, for sales reps, and so I was still in network marketing, um, you know. And I, I used to do sales trainings when I first moved back to Albuquerque in 1998. Um, I was doing them there in, in out of her office, Explora sites. My uncle was the one building the exhibit. Some of those exhibits my uncle built are still in Explora today. And then she put together, so I saw her build that and then they built the building, right? So when they built the building, my mom left, another executive director from Texas came in and my mom went and uh, took over the chapter for the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And she, she did all the the safe housing, all that stuff that you see for the Coalition Against Domestic Violence for statements is my mom. My mom did all that. Her and the governor would fight, they fight each other all the time. My mom moved to Connecticut, did it over there there, moved back. And so I saw, I saw a woman with no college degree and just hard work take as a bookkeeper. She, and she went from driving a bus, went in as being a bookkeeper and she pushed and she taught us like that. She just said, she goes, they, she was, you guys can do anything anybody can do. Right. She was put your head to it. Right. She was your job as a child. My job was to do better than my mom and dad. Your guys' job is to do better than us. When you're a kid, you think like literally, unless you're born in like third world, like real poverty or abuse or something, which 85% of the population is not. 85% of the population really comes from pretty stable backgrounds. Um, You know, I know we hear a lot of the bad stuff, um, but really 85%, that's a real statistic, come from pretty stable homes, pretty stable backgrounds. And, you know, so for 85% of us that come from those backgrounds, you know, my mom would say, because your job is to do better than, than we did. And so for 85% of you look at it and you go, wow, you know, I really didn't have that bad of an upbringing, right? Like you think you have everything when you were a kid. I had a bike and a skateboard. Everything else like was cush, right? Like I had a bike and a skateboard. Um, and I used to think to myself, damn, how, Jared, do I do better than my mom and dad? I thought we had everything. Little did I know. Um, but I always took that in the bad, back of my mind. And so I always felt like I had a push at stuff. And so I did, you know, and I always felt it was like my job. I, no, nobody was was superior to me. I wasn't inferior to anybody. And um, and you have to you have to sell yourself on that. And it's a sales. It, you mean you're set. You have. To, I still do today. You know, you get intimidated by by um, bits and pieces of the world out there because the world seems to be so big. Um, I just never got intimidated by it. So I pushed. And none of that stuff ever scared me. I get a little pit in my stomach here and there, and I still do. Um, when I hit, when I push myself to new levels, but I try not to think about it and I don't focus on that pit. I just look past it and the pit goes away and then real life problems have to be addressed. And so those push you kind of through those little, uh, breaking points. And I think that's very important, you know, just not to stay focused. So many people focus and dwell. I, I don't focus and dwell on anything. I just, I just keep driving forward. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned, you know, the story with your mom, cause I kind of have a similar one where, you know, my mother, you know, grew up 
in Albuquerque. She was, you know, worked for the city for 25 years in, in traffic control, right? And and on the side, she wanted to get into real estate. So she went and she got her general contractor license and built some beautiful homes and just, I mean, is, is really, really enjoying the fruits of her labor from it for sure. And it's a, a lot of these things that, you know, 15 years ago when she started, I didn't, I didn't really appreciate it as much. I didn't know I was going to have this type of interest, you know, so many years later or even learning Spanish. And then here I am, you know, today wishing that I learned a little bit more about real estate while she was doing it. I wish I learned more about Spanish. Uh, well, you know, her and my father would, would speak it. And so going into that, you have the experience of flipping, you know, multifamily, renting, all that type of stuff. And today I really want to talk to you about, about building a home. Uh, I want to go through the whole entire process. I know you you have a really good um, product out there about earning 80 to 100K a year by building one single family home. Man, let, let's let's dive into that for sure, man. Uh, so someone like myself, I come to you, Jerome, hey, I'm interested in doing this. What are some of the questions that you would ask me? What are the what are those steps? I know there's you have a 14 step guide, which I've been I've been checking out and I'll actually I'll put that uh that link in the the description and the below in the YouTube video and on uh, the podcast. But take me, you don't have to take me through every single step, but the majority of them and take me through. Yeah. So one of the big things is people don't even I think the biggest thing, and I didn't realize this when I first started doing it. Um, it seemed to be common sense to me, but it was finding land. And the reason I think it was, it felt like common sense to me is because if you've ever heard my story, the way I started building homes was I was pouring concrete. I was doing, um, I was, I had a drywall and metal stud framing company, and I also had a concrete branch to it. And our concrete branch was not really foundations, it was more decorative concrete. So hence we kind of got into the landscaping side of the decorative concrete side, because uh, we were doing stuff like the rainforest cafes and stuff like that. Well, I needed it. I, there wasn't enough rainforest cafes to continue the business, right? Like go out there. So we we're flying out like Utah. We did this place called Margaritas that you, you did indoor diving. We did all that, that beautiful faux rock concrete stuff um, in, in commercial settings where we would make a lot of money. And at the time, I, and I was doing golf courses. That was a big hit for us was um, doing a lot of um, renovations to golf courses um, all over the Southwest and West Coast. And so I, um, I, in doing this, we were doing a big giant retaining wall in a town called Rio Rancho, which you're familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, where Intel is in New Mexico. And we had this big giant massive wall. And I used to get these crazy projects when I was younger because I was young and bold, and it was all the stuff that no other residential contractor wanted. Like they'd go look at it and be like, "Holy shit!" Like I, like they wouldn't. The homeowners would call us and they're like, "Yeah, we've had like six contractors come out here. They come and look at it and they disappear. We never hear back from them." And I'll be like, "We'll do that, right." That was uh -huh. uh -huh. right. So literally, I'd have headlights, guys hanging upside down, holding their ankles, carving rocks and boulders and. You know, that's how we got our start. We make a shitload of money doing it, man. I could make 20 grand in a week doing crazy stuff like that. And um, and this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I, four houses down from where we were doing this crazy retaining wall, um, there's a guy over the course of that week and I'd see him show up. I saw him show up like twice and I just happened to be there. And he, um, he rolls up on a Harley, both times rolls up in a Harley, has his button down shirt, like, you know, Tommy Bahama style. And just look to, he had all his like skull rings and dude, he looked cool, man. The dude looked hip, man. You know, like my mm -hmm. son would say today, he looked drip, dad. That guy has drip, you know? He, he has <laughs> yeah. some drip. He has some drip. He has some drip, dad. Mm -hmm. And so 
this dude had some drip, man, going on. And I was like, damn, this dude, man, rolls up looking clean, man, to a T. And I knew he was the builder, right? Like, there's just something about his energy that I could tell, you know, that he was the builder. Um, and so I, 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 one day, you know, me being me, I, I talked to people. I'm a little, I'm a little outgoing in that regards. And I just went over there and I say, yo, bro, I said, is this your house? And he goes, well, yeah, I mean, he's he from New Zealand. So yeah, this real heavy, um, you know, New Zealand accent to him, had his hair shaved bald and um, just a good guy. Um, his name was Wayne and dude, just a cool dude. And I go, I go, so, so what do you think you're going to make on this sucker? I just told him like that. I go, what do you think you'll make on this one build? And he goes, well, mate, I wish to, you know, I, I, I hope I make at least $80,000. You know, he goes, I'll be pissed if I don't at least make 80, you know? Oh, wow. I go, really? How long do you think it takes you to build this? He goes, four months. He goes, he goes, ah, I got to have them done in four months. And so then I was like, damn, you know, four months, an extra $80,000. And um, I was probably making about 20 grand a month at that time back then. So I was thinking 20, 40, 60, 80, four months. I just double my income building one freaking house, man. This dude doesn't even like, he's never here. And, um, and I was like, damn, I could double my income by building a freaking house. So, um, so I asked him, how much did you pay for your lot? He goes, I paid 30,000 30, or 35, I can't remember, but it was about 30, 35,000. So I didn't go very far. I literally went four more homes, the opposite direction than that we were doing the house. I bought the fourth lot over on the other side where he was building. Like nice. I didn't invent the wheel. I was like, shit, he's selling for that. He's making $80,000. Fuck, I'll just build a house. That makes sense. $80,000 right there, right? So I didn't complicate it. So to me, and I just kept building in that area. You still go to that same area today? There's still lots available, man. And there's not that much more expensive than I was paying back then. But the house values went up, right? That's always building costs, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but now you can make about $130,000 instead of $80,000, right? So I made $83,000 on that first house. It took me exactly 120 days to build that thing. Had it sold, that house is still there. I, you see my videos from in front of it. And my I thought it was a piece of shit. Like, I honestly, I thought I built that thing jacked up, man. Like, I, I, I honestly did. I thought I made a bunch of mistakes. But you go by that house today, I'm, like, pleasantly surprised. All the stonework that's around the, the arches, it's still all on there. Same color, same everything. Um, I think it's the same owners, too, that are still there. They've gotten, they were old. They were, like, in their 60s then. They're, like, in their 80s now. They're older. And um, and I went and filmed in front of me, and they pull in throws a dirty look because they don't know. And, you know, I didn't tell them I was the builder, but we'll go film in front of it. And, and they throw me a dirty look when they drive up the driveway and stuff before. And um, I think it's the same owners. Um, in all honesty, they were from Pennsylvania. I still remember them. And, um, and then I bought another house, two or three houses down from that. And, um, and so I, I go through a process of how to find land, like how I find land. Like when I go to Phoenix, how I find land out there. When I go to Washington, how I find land there. No more in the country. I mean, in, in 15 minutes, I can find the area that you need to be building in in like 15 minutes on the internet. And then I tell people, now go drive it. Don't just look on the internet. Get off your ass, go drive it, right? That's okay. the first. So you see, you know, is it Zillow, Redfin, any, any of those types of? Zillow, I use Zillow. I, I use Redfin when I'm driving the area. Okay. For two different purposes, <clears throat> because of the different tools that each of them have, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not a, a fan of the Redfin website. I love Zillow. I love the website because I love the searching, searching parameters and I love what pull, how it pulls it up. And it's real simple for me to get visuals of the area. Now, once I'm in the area, I don't like the Zillow. Uh, I don't like the Zillow app or the Zillow, um, or the Zillow uh, uh, website. <clears throat> I like actually utilizing um, the the Redfin app. And the reason why is because of the comps. Um, I like getting the Redfin app 
and I like driving and seeing the actual numbers around me. So I see the house numbers, right? Like click on them, it pulls it up and I get to uh, see that stuff. So you're not looking as much into the land uh, per se, you're as a comp, you're, you're trying to find houses that could, you could potentially um, build to be a comp for that, that area, that particular neighborhood. Oh no, I need the comps. That's, that's, that's huge. That's important. Mm-hmm. That's when I drive there. So I already did have done this on Zillow, right? So like I go in and I, I just simply go in and I look for new homes in whatever area, right? Like new homes that are in excess of 500,000. I'll set the, on Zillow, I'll set the, the parameters um, that I, I'm looking for homes that are within. Why do you do 500,000? That's my business model. Like, so I'm giving you guys some gold here, right? So like, I don't look at the mean, like the median home right now is 350,000. Jared, it's mm-hmm. not a safe place to be. Because when you think about things economically, that's what I tell people. So look at the first, the first homes that go into foreclosure when there's a compressed market, right? Everything I do, I try to exercise with logic. And so really, really important for people to understand this, right? So you have to look at things. Like I was just on the phone with Mo, who runs my back office, all my social media stuff, Mo runs. And he goes, we had just had a video that went on YouTube. It's our best video. And it, I mean, our best video gets a couple thousand views, right? Like compared to hundreds of thousands, we're getting there. So, but he goes, Jerome, you killed it with this video. And he goes, I think what did it is he goes, when you, when you talk about stuff, everybody else is talking about that same subject, talks about all the negative stuff. He goes, you took the negative, but unfolded it where you show the safety behind it, why you're doing what you're doing. And you look at, and I looked at it historically, right? So when I look at numbers and I'm looking at how to like, when I'm building my, when I built my business plan, and look, I didn't build this business plan for you guys. Like I, I built this business plan for me, right? Like when I put this together, I always tell people like, I graciously share this with you. But in all honesty, I'm not building, like I didn't build an educational program to sell to you guys, um, all the viewers watching up there. This is really my business plan. Like this is what's coming through, went through Jerome's mind. This is like how I manifested like, how this really worked, right? So when you look at the recession, 2008, mass majority of homes that were in foreclosure at that time were what? Median family homes. Because what most people don't realize is 60% of our population, Jared, 60 is less than $250 away from bankruptcy if they just, if, if their income changed by $250 a month in three for three months, it would put 60% of our population in a bankruptcy. Bro, it, that's like, those numbers are astronomical. It's crazy. And so most people, if you look at our national debt, they live on credit, man. They if you they make four thousand a month take home, they're living on five thousand, right? And so it's just that revolution of, um, of how they spend. So the median family home, 60% of people, if there's a compressed market, it's not the ultra wealthy to get hit. People think that. It's not. It's the median. It's the people that have just that average credit, that average job, that market sector gets hit first. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Why? Because I'm competing with all the mass builders that are, that are producing homes in mass quantity, right? So their margins could be, could be smaller than mine not worth my time. I don't want those profits. They're not big enough for me. My time's too valuable. Your time's too valuable. And everybody listening, their time's too valuable building one, onesie twosies of these. I'm telling you, there's a better business model. So I tell them, don't, don't get into that sector. That's a dangerous sector because it's such a small profit margin. If we get into a compressed market, what happens to your profits? They're gone. They're, they, they, they evaporate, man. They're gone. Not a safe place to be. The big 
the big ultra wealthy, like the $15 million homes, that market doesn't get hit either. So like that area, but that's like the ultra wealthy, right? Those people build, those people don't get hit either, but most people can't afford to get into that sector, right? So the second market that gets hit the, the most is vacation homes and those million dollar homes, that million to $2.5 million mark, that's second. Because those are people that are competing with the Joneses. Those are people making, you got a husband, wife, each making $150,000, $200,000 a year. They're doing well. Market compresses. They go and build themselves a, a $1.5 million home that they shouldn't be in, right? They should be in like an $800,000, but they're not. They're in like a $1.5 million home. They're over leveraged. They're driving they're driving $100,000 Mercedes. The other one's driving $100,000 Range Rover. They both have $1,000 payments a month. They each have, you know, they, they have $10,000 a month in just payments of shit, right? Just stuff. And they've overlived in every facet of the imagination from vacations, jewelry, everything. And those are the people that get hit second. They're buying vacation homes. Um, so that the secondary market gets hit second. So the big million dollar homes. The market sector that gets hit, hit the least, if you do your homework, is, the, is just over the mean. You have to be just over the median. So you've got to think about your mom and dad, right? Like those mm-hmm. of us that come from good, stable, middle-class families, uh, my mom and dad aren't struggling, right? They, they're, they're good. They've, they've done, they have, they're not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they were t- born in a time where you could really buy a home and it could be your number one asset, okay? They bought it. You know, I remember when my dad built the, our house for like $75,000 and sold it for like $350,000. That set them up, man. And um, they have shit paid off. So empty nesters are people that have worked their 30-year career. They've paid off their home. They've moved from more affluent cities and moved into more median cities. They go in, they buy their home cash, or they have a modest mortgage. Those people don't get affected by uh, compressed market. A lot of them are empty nesters. They're on fixed income. Um, or they're professionals that do well, you know, that, that do well enough. And it's they're not overstretched. They're not over leveraged, right? So that half million, the 800,000 mark, I always tell people, that's the part, that's the area I build in the most. Now, I, you know, the contrary to that is like what I do in Seattle. Anything over there is just over a million. Market's slightly different, right? So the demographics slightly change a little bit. So you have to use common sense too, based on the demographics. But when you talk about the mass majority of the United States, that market sector is the safest market sector to be in. Okay. And so when, when you're kind of evaluating this land, as you know, you know, uh, in flipping, a lot of people go by like the 70% rule, right? You know, uh, 70% of the ARV minus expenses. Is is there a formula that kind of runs through your mind that you can run a quick number while you evaluate this land? Or is it simply just kind of comparing it to an ARV of a, a home that w- would be... a fairly comparable to what you would be building. Yeah, I don't know how people run ARVs like that on fix and flips, man. That shit doesn't work, does it? Like, in my eyes, that shit don't work, man. Like, I don't know. I never got that, right? So, like, mm-hmm. people do that, right? They teach it. And I sit back and go, I hate the fix and flip deal, man. Mm-hmm. I, I know it. I know you do. That's why, that's, yeah. yeah I, I like I to just, hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I just, I, I don't get it. Like, I get it. Like, okay, if you're going to hold it and rent it, like the birth strategy, cool. Mm-hmm. I respect that because you're building units, right? Like you're mm-hmm. building passive income. I'm a big passive income guy. Um, learned it in network marketing. I still get passive income from the network marketing I built back in the 90s. Still get a check every month from what I built in the 90s. Small check, but it's a check, right? Like I make a few grand every month, more than a lot of people make. I make more on my passive income than the average median income. But it's a small check compared to like our, our real estate stuff. But... Um, so, you know, that's okay. 
But like the, the fix and flip, I don't get it, man. The risk versus versus reward to me just doesn't make sense. It's never added up. I've tried it. I've done it. I did it pre-recession. I tried it post-recession. Um, it's just, it's not my thing. Like to go out and spend four months to, to make a $30,000 profit with all that risk, just to me, because I always make profits on my real estate, Jared. So when the recession hit, I, I sold all that stuff for a break even, which is a loss because I lost time, right? My houses, on the other hand, that I'm talking about, I made a profit on all of them. All of them. I undersold two of them. So my worst profit ever was $32,000. You know, that was my worst profit ever, $32,000. The next, I mean, it was $38,000. $42,000 was my worst. $42,000 was my second worst and $38,000 was my, was my first worst profit. So I mean, 38,000 was the worst profit I ever made on any house I've ever built. And 42 was the second one. I sold both of those at a time when everybody was frantic, right? In in the recession. I was like, oh shit, I better sell properties. Mm-hmm. So I, I just shit canned them. And I didn't even know I made a profit till the end of the year. My accountant came back and he said, yeah, I gave me my tax bill. I said, How, this can be, that's impossible. Like I didn't make no money. Like, like we took a wash on those stuff. He goes, no, no, you made money. And I was like, really? And I probably made more than that because I would buy other shit through the ha- like through those houses that I would expense, right? So probably made a little even more than that. But that's what we had accounted for on our books. And so I can legitimately say I made $38,000 on one and $42,000 on another as my worst two transactions in buying land and building houses. So I look at that and look at the risk versus reward. And I just go, man, it just makes so much more sense because those – you know, I went from that to making eighty thousand dollars plus per house once I adjusted my business model after into the recession. So by two thousand, late two thousand nine, early two thousand ten, we were building homes again. Like if we never stopped, we just changed our business model. We compressed our our contractors, made them take a little bit of a margin cut as well, and we were still making eighty plus thousand dollars on every house. Um, you know, during a, a real shitty time. Okay. So you look at the land, how much is the land worth? Uh, you know, just 40,000, whatever. And then you, you know, in your mind, Hey, like I can build this at, you know, a certain amount per square foot. And then I compare that to what the neighborhood supports. Yep. So you take a look at the comps, right? And uh-huh. you, you want to be all into the land. When I say all into the land, the land cost plus all utility cost to do all the utilities. So what does a septic tank cost me? What is my water connection? Do I have to dig a well? Do I have to do, um, or do I have to get a water meter? How much, what's the cost of that? And do I need to buy an electric? What's a typical range for something like that? For a well? Yeah, for a well and a brand new septic. A well, a well, a septic takes like 6,500 bucks. Okay. Three, four bedroom home. Um, so not very expensive. That's not very expensive. I'm, I'm, I'm okay all day long with septic tanks. Um, and as long as I can get my water and sewer tap done, if it's available, even better, right? So I could pay more for my lot if I if my sewer connection is there already for me. Um, so I say all into the lot with 25%, right? So 25% of my bill cost, that's my max. Now, anything lower than that goes to your bottom line. So obviously, I like to see a lower acquisition price. Like if I get closer to 20%, all in on my land, even better. But you got to be careful. Like with wells, wells are expensive nowadays, 30000 bucks for a well in most places. You know, so you remember, like you say, oh, I can sell a house for six hundred thousand dollars. If you're paying eighty thousand dollars for the land, and you got to put another thirty thousand dollars into the well and another six thousand dollars in the septic tank. Now you're you're into well over six figures on the land, which on a six hundred thousand dollar house still might be okay. Depends on how you're trimming it out, right? Depends on the trim out. So there's factors for sure. That's why, like, 
it's hard to give an AUV that just says this is the perfect percentage, right? And that's why like working with our team is so important because um, we could take we could take general stuff information, right? And then I look at stuff and I go, okay, so this is my land cost, this is my this is my utility cost, this is my trim out because. If you look at the $650,000 houses I built locally in, in the Albuquerque market, and you take a look at the $600,000 houses that I build over in, in Desert Hot Springs, they're both $650,000 houses, but the ones here are substantially nicer than the ones out there, you know, substantially nicer. Um, so I need to be able to get, I need to be able to get into them for uh, I need to get my land here for a little less money, um, which is sometimes viable, sometimes not. But I'll tell you, our, our profitability out there is greater um, than it is here, right? So like where I might make $130,000 on a build here, $140,000 um, out there, I'll make about $160,000, you know? So my profitability is a little bit more, but the house is so much simpler. But we, we have to also think, the land cost out there is almost the same as it is here, actually a little less, but I got to do full solar. So that's another $15,000, right? Plus I still have to connect to the electric because they want to take and harvest my, my, my extra solar. So, um, so it's no savings, it's just an extra $16,000. So utilities are big. So I always tell people between 20 to 25%, 25% max of total resale costs should be your land with all, okay. with all utilities, all utilities. Okay. And so for people that are interested in this, do you have to have a general contractor's license to act, kind of put this whole thing together? Do you recommend kind of newbies in this space to go out and, and get that to educate themselves a little bit? Or you think it's it's better to partner with the GC um, to begin to begin doing this? So but all of the above, all of the above, okay, are, are the right answer. Really depends on you, you know, um, my first build, I happened to have my general contractor's license. I, I, I had gotten it, right? Um, but like in California, I don't have a general contractor's license. So I partnered with Dave Carvajal. He does. He has his. Um, so I partnered, right? Um, in uh, Washington State, you don't need a contractor's license. You can just go build. So me and Ramez are doing it. and But we still hire a general contractor mm-hmm. uh, because they have the contacts that we need. And so we pay them a 15% cost plus model. Um, a cost plus model is cost of materials plus labor. Okay. That's what a cost plus model is. Um, there's some management involved in that. I always tell people, don't just think that if you hire a general contractor at 15% cost plus that it's just like, oh, slam dunk, I'm going to make the profits, Jerome said, you know, um, there's, there's work involved. There's management in there. Like you got to be managing paper and managing mm-hmm. bids and you got to be managing people, right? Because if you give them an open book, 15% of a, of a, of a small number is not that much, but 15% of a large number is a lot of freaking money, right? So there's some management in there. So you, uh, you got to manage them. You got to, you got to go in um, and you got to make sure that you're, you're building costs for your subcontractors or the subcontractors, your, your general contractor is using is um, are adequate for your business model. And so we have spreadsheets. My dad and I built this back when I built my first house on Excel, stupid, simple. It's real simple. And we just reverse engineer every build before we get started. So I make sure, and now I do a lot in my brain because I already know the cost, right? I've been doing it my whole life, but I would reverse engineer my, uh, my building cost. And I tell people, I say reverse engineer. This is what I did in the beginning is I would go in, I, I collect bids and I see what my costs are. If I don't like what my costs are, continue shopping, you know, like I just retained a new electrician. My electrician's been working for 20 years. 
but he's too expensive. And I told him, Johnny, bro, I go, dude, you went from 13,000 to 15,000 to 18,000, now 21,000. I go, bro, you're fucking killing me. I said, I can't pay that, man. I was like, you're killing me, man. Mm-hmm. And he was like, ah, well, everything's more expensive. And I said, bro, it's not that much more expensive. You can't go from 13 to 21, man. Mm-hmm. Like, single family bill is stupid. Mm-hmm. I told him, he goes, well, if I can't even get that, yeah, I'd rather you just go somewhere, get give it to somebody else. And he really didn't mean that, but he told me that. So I yeah. said, okay. Okay. Do it. I like, so I never take bids as scripture a lot of people will come in they'll take a bid as scripture like oh shit it's more than jerome said hold on there's a process to this Mm -hmm. so we went back in so like i got a bid for seventeen thousand dollars you know and i like that's four grand man and and then i'm gonna get him even lower because the guy goes hey who do you are you doing your own concrete because he knew me and i said yeah we actually do our own concrete but we're slammed it cost me money to do my own slabs because the money i make Having my guys go work for somebody else is more than I save having somebody else that specializes in foundations do it for me. So there's this guy that I use and, uh, and I, I would tell him, I go, I go, I'd call him up and say, hey, again, will you do a slab for me? And I pay him an extra three, four thousand dollars and it would cost me and it was worth it. And so this guy goes, hey, I got him. I, I can pour your concrete, too. So he came in. And it's probably about, I'd say about 7,000 more than it would cost me to do the slab myself. And I'm willing to pay, you know, as much as three to five. And I'd say, hey, maybe the electrical and the concrete work, will you knock two or $3,000 off of both combined bids? And he goes, yes, Jerome, I'll do, I'll do it if you do both. So a couple thousand. So I'm within my threshold, right? And I'm like, cool, it's worth my time because my guy's making more money out there working. Mm-hmm. And I'm giving him both the concrete work and the electrical. And it's a win-win deal for me. And so, um, and so I can just shop stuff. I get creative, bidding stuff, negotiating with people. Uh, I give them a reason to give me a discount. Um, I tell them, you know, I'll, I'll just tell them now it's easy for me because people know who I am. So I just, so I just, I go, look, man, I said, you do me right. Shit. You can have my homes. I, I don't want to be out there babysitting bids, but, um, and you know, I, I keep them fed. So a lot of our contractors, I keep them fed. So give them a reason, build a house. And tell me, I have another one coming up to work with you. You know, if, if, if and I, I would, I was bold in my young days. I tell them, you don't do it at this price. You're only fucking yourself. I tell them because you'll never use you again. You know, and I would tell them that, right? I said, like, the worst mistake you'll ever you ever do is, is overbidding this job. Do it for this price. And I promise you, I'll do business. You'll get more work. You'll have more volume. Yeah. And I would, I would talk to them like that. And mm-hmm. I would tell them like that. And it, and it worked. And I did. But I held up to my side of the deal, right? Like a lot of my contractors, I fed them through the recession. I told them. I was like, look, you bring your prices down. You're going to make a small, slightly less. I know what your costs are. I've been doing this a long time. I know what your profitability is. I get it. I know you're taking a pay cut. That's okay. I'm taking a pay cut. We're all taking a pay cut. But if you do it like this, you'll keep eating. And we'll get through this. And as times change, we'll do it. Some said yes. Some said no. And the ones that said yes, we got through it together. And the ones that said no, most of them are out of business, if not all of them. You know, they went back and went work for somebody else because they couldn't get through it. They wanted they they wanted their cake and they want to eat it too. Look, you know, in unprecedented times, take unprecedented circumstances and dealing with to make shit happen. And you know, you got to make compromises. Um, so we all do. You know, I went from making one hundred twenty thousand a house down to eighty. That's a forty thousand margin cut, right? They, you know, and so they made ten percent less or whatever it was as well. We all did. What did you say? You said some kind of number. I don't know what YouTube video it was about us needing at least what six point five million 
homes for the next 30 years or 15 years. I don't know what it was for just for us to be able to keep up with the demand. Yep. Yeah. So there's right now, today, like not like in the future, like right now, our current shortage is over 5 million homes nationwide, 5 million. So understand, even with our current inventory, people don't know how we got there. They just think like, how did this number, arbitrage number come about like overnight? It isn't an arbitrage number. It didn't happen overnight. Um, what happens if you look back historically, and, and I'm a big numbers guy, it's, it's, that's my... That's one of my my strong points is numbers because reading isn't. Reading I've gotten good at, but I'm, I'm a numbers guy. So I look at numbers and I go back and you look at statistically what the U.S. population, how many homes we as Americans have built every decade, every 10 years. Okay, So if you go back all the way to the 60s, you start from like 1969 to 1979, about 10,000 homes were built in that decade. In the 80s, 10, about 11,000 homes were built. In the 90s, um, about the same number. So almost every decade, about 10 to 11,000 homes were built. I think between um, 2000 and 2010, because of the, the the craziness that happened, we were like at 11.8 million homes that were, um, I mean, yeah, 11.8 million homes in a decade that were built. Then if you look at what happened from 2010 to 2020, only 6 million homes got built in that decade. We're there. 2020 was just two years ago, ladies and gentlemen. So you look back in, in 10 years, in that entire decade, only 6 million homes got built. Why? Because everybody was scared to death that was in the construction industry because we got mutilated in the recession of 2008. So you we just got so beat up and annihilated that everybody's numbers went down. You take a look at big companies like Kaufman and Broad, KB Homes. You take a look at like DR Horton, you look at the stocks, you look at LGI homes, you look at all these big builders, their numbers are, are smaller. They're more compressed. They're, they're, they've appreciated in value, but the quantity has went down. And so we built between four to five million less homes in that decade, in, mm-hmm. in the last decade than there were. That's where our shortage comes from. That's why there's not enough inventory. So you take a look at like the baby boomers. Everybody talks about the baby boomers. Ladies and gentlemen, the Gen X population, which is what I'm in, I'm part of, is bigger than that population, than the, than the baby boomer population. But even what's bigger than, than that is the millennials. And so now we have people my age that are in their 40s and 50s that are in the Gen X population. We're bigger than the baby boomers, and we're still all buying homes, right? So you take a look at the at the um, you take a look at the millennials. Well, the millennials now are in their 30s. And they're, they're all in their 30s now, right? Maybe a few in their late 20s and um, in all in their 30s. So now the millennials are starting to get married, need homes, have families, and they're buying. And it's it's the biggest populate, uh, population growth um, so far, right, that we have documented since the history of Adam and Eve. Then you take a look at the Gen Z population, okay? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Gen Z population is right behind um, the uh, the millennials, and they're they're not as big as the millennials, but they're as big as the Gen X population, which is still bigger than the baby boomer population, the baby boomers population. And the Gen Z, not all of them are looking for homes yet. Some of them are still teenagers going into 20 in their young 20s, but they're moving in that direction. And so when I talk about numbers and you look at like real statistics, I'm like, OK, we need to build 10 million in the next decade, plus the 5 million that we were behind. So we need to build 15 million homes in the next decade just to stay up with current demands. That's just like current demands. And that's like our minimum. And so really we need like, we need to build out like 20 million homes in the next, uh, in the next 10 years. 
So who's going to do it? I'll take some of that, you know, right? Uh-huh. Like, like I have no problem taking some of that. I'm interested. I'm definitely yeah. interested. So it, it's one of those things where when people say, well, I'm skeptical. I'm like, okay, well, you be skeptical. I mean, there's a need. And, um, you know, like one of my mentors told me years ago, Jared, he said, Jerome, when you find a, a solution to a massive problem and you are part of that solution, you'll mass a fortune bigger than you can even comprehend. But he said, you have to, you have to be fixing those problems. Um, we have a problem. There's a housing shortage and it's real and it's big. And even if we get into a compressed market, there's still going to be a need. So you have to be able to build smart, right? Because there is going to be, there is going to be, there's going to be a time sooner than later where the market compresses hands down. It's going to happen. Um, we're not, we're not exempt from it. Um, and in spite of the need that we have for houses, there's going to be a spike in foreclosures. It is real and it is going to happen. And, um, and so you just have to be building in the right market sector, right? And if you don't, like, do you guys ever go to Texas during the recession? Anybody? Like, shit, man, I drive to Texas. Like, damn, is there a recession here? Because, like, I, I couldn't tell. Couldn't tell. Recession in Texas. They were grading land as if it was, like, there was no recession at all. Nothing. Right? Yeah. And so you got to study what's worked for other people. And when you study for other, um, other economies the cities that were thriving and you utilize and exercise those, that type of economics, um, it'll work for you too. Absolutely. Well, I think we're going to end right on that. That was perfect advice for people who are interested in building a home. We didn't even get through all the, all the steps or whatnot. I'm going to have to have you back for a part two, man, for sure. Uh, but for those listening, I'm going to, I'm going to link, um, I'm going to put a link in there. If you're interested in any of Jerome's courses, he has some amazing, I I think I, I purchased like three of them over, over winter break or whatnot when he had them and I've been going through them and I'm learning a lot. That's why I wanted to get him on here. So we'll have to have him on again for part two. Jerome, if people have questions for you, man, how can they get a hold of you? I got to get you back on at some point. Yeah, no problem. You know, Jared, I'll be, I'll be, I'll come on back on as many times as you, as you want me to. Absolutely. Right. They don't kick me off. Yeah. Heck no. How can they get a hold of you? They got any other questions? You see my, you see my name here on the screen. You see my name in the, in the podcast. Um, real easy to find. I'm on all social media platforms. Um, I'm on YouTube. Follow me on YouTube. Our, our YouTube stuff is is awesome. Um, tons of great free content for you guys. Um, and uh, you know, click subscribe. You guys get notified. Um, but I'm real easy to find. Just uh, just hit me up on any social media platform. Um, it's just my name on all of them, with the exception of Instagram. Add the number one to the end of it, and um, and follow us. Yeah, absolutely. For those listening and watching Jerome's content on YouTube, especially is, is amazing. And it's, it's, it's crazy. Cause I, 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 we're going to see a blow up of Jerome here pretty, pretty shortly. All of his content, I swear to you is just as good and valuable as a lot of the people that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of su- subscribers. So he he's going to be on his way shortly. And so take advantage of all the, the content you can get from him. Cause it's, it's, it's going to be awesome, man. Jerome, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate you. Always love having I appreciate your time, man. Appreciate you very much, bro. All right, brother. We'll talk soon.